Brothers and sisters, happy Sunday. Kinfolk, let us pray. Holy, loving God, I pray that the words of my lips and the meditations of our minds will be pleasing and acceptable unto thee, our rock and redeemer. Amen. I think and I hope that everyone in here is familiar, familiar with the term upward mobility, upwardly mobile. That was a big word when I was growing up uh, in the late 90s. It seemed that everybody was upwardly mobile uh, in the late 90s. I don't know what to, to what end uh, precisely, because uh, a lot of crazy stuff happened, but people were very interested in upward mobility. Uh, and so it was interesting to me that I'd never encountered the opposite on this term, downward mobility. We all know what upward mobility is. And upward mobility is important. It is lacking in our society today. So much wealth disparity. We have young people who have very little hope of doing better than their parents. And so upward mobility is almost kind of a cruel joke to a lot of folks under the age of 30 these days. But I encountered the word downward mobility at a worship service outside of Fort Benning, Georgia, the School of the Americas. And you know who was preaching that day at that worship service? It was none other than our valiant Jesuit fighter, Father John Deere, who I just can't seem to talk about enough. I talked about him two weeks ago. John Deere, not like the tractor, D-E-A-R. That's what he would say. He was talking about downward mobility. He was praying for us that we would have downward mobility. A terrible prayer. I don't want that. Don't put that on me, Father John. Yeah, you need it. Uh, Father Deer is this prophet, nonviolent warrior. Um, now, he was singling out the new Christians who'd come in that day to hear him preach. He knew that a lot of us were converts, and he wanted to pray to us. And I was brand new. I was about 23 years old very new to the whole thing. Uh, and he was singling me out and singling all of the new Christians out for repentance and confession. And that's how you know you're at a real church. You're not at some place where they're playing at church. It's like it's altar call. They get to do an altar call. Well, how many of you have ever been at a church where they do an altar call? God forbid, it's a funeral service someplace. They want to get you saved. Get you come on up and get saved. Um, that's not, I mean, that's awkward, but it's not hard. You're just being asked to come down. Everything's going to be okay. We're going to say this magical prayer together, and uh, you get your fire insurance for after you die. That's kind of a cheap grace altar call. You know who invented altar calls? It was the, uh, the disciples in northern Ohio during the Second Great Awakening. The altar call was invented by Charles Finney. Charles Finney was probably one of the greatest preachers that ever lived in America. He invented everything from the altar call to the camp collection to the nervous bench. He used to have, if he got sinners to sit down in front of church, he wouldn't put a pew down there. He'd just put like a, a bit of wood on a couple of rickety logs. And then uh, once he got real fiery in his preaching, he'd have one of his ushers kick out one of the logs. And everybody jump up to their feet. All the people behind him would say, good Lord, the Spirit's got those sinners. Better do something. But he'd have people come down to get the altar call. They'd come on down and be saved. If he convicted them and convinced them that they were going to truly live today for Jesus Christ, then he wanted to see them front and center. And then they'd pray with those folks, and then another usher would take them 
Uh, not back to their seats. No, no, they would go into the back of the church, uh, through a back door, into another little room where they would learn about his great project that he was supporting. And it was a project that was called the Underground Railroad. He was an abolitionist, and this is his recruitment technique. If you'd given your life over to Jesus Christ there and then on that Sunday morning, you were ready to participate in providing freedom to escaped uh, runaways, people who had been threatened under the lash of slavery. And that's how he built up the Underground Railroad. We don't do that anymore. I don't have an altar call or I come up here and say, hey, uh, congratulations, you found the Lord, now let's go break the law. Um, <laughs> but I felt that John Deere might have just such an altar call, and so I kept my feet rooted to the ground. I wasn't getting mixed up in anything like that. Um, a real altar call by a real prophet of God isn't some wishy-washy, warm sort of thing. It's like getting hit in the soul with a sledgehammer. I can think of a couple times it's happened, but this was definitely the first. And it was like he was speaking directly to me, this 23-year-old baby Christian that had wandered into his purview. New to the Jews, Jesus. I had a lot of garbage in my head from the world. A lot of garbage that has no future in the kingdom of God. And I'll tell you what I heard him say. I heard him say, Father dear, he said, Nathan, you say you're going to love Jesus with your lips. You say you want to be his follower, but you're full of deceit. Because you failed to practice downward mobility in your Christian life. You're still lusting after money and recognition, the love of adoration of common wealthy American instead of the love of Jesus Christ. Jesus is there. He's out there. And you're looking right past him. Many were the altar calls I was to receive after that, but another one came to me when I was in my later 20s in Chicago at a worship service Another former Jesuit priest, Greg Galuzzo, uh, who was frustrated with me because I'd been working as a community organizer and I wanted to work as a church pastor. He said, I always suspected you were that way. I said, I said, what way, Greg? And he said, well, you're a pastor. You're addicted to being smiled at. He said, I'm dragging you around the south side of Chicago to pick fights with politicians and Congress critters, and you just want to go to church and tell people they liked your sermon. He poked me in the chest. No one other than my father had ever poked me in the chest. He said, you do this, you're going to turn into a warm bag of mushy feelings. You'll be useless to me. I said, no, Greg, I'll tell the truth. He said, well, we'll see how long you last. And that was about 15 years ago. So I think I was doing it okay. But this is a ministry, this question of where we choose to speak and tell the truth and how we live. Following that worship service with Father John preaching there at the School of the Americas, that next day I watched about 30 nuns, elderly nuns, little, little nuns, um, get themselves arrested. Uh, they were there because they were angry about what had happened to some of their sisters in South America. Uh, and the, 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 the men who brutalized uh, their friends had been trained uh, at the School of the Americas in Fort Benning, Georgia got sent down to South America. And so they'd written their sisters' names on white crosses. And they carried those crosses right up onto the grassy hillside there beside that military academy. And oh, it's trespassing. You're not supposed to do that. We talked about what happens when you do that a couple weeks ago. Um, and so the, they, uh, they arrested them and put them on a bus and took them to jail. I watched all that happen. I was thinking about what Father John Deere had said about commitment. I decided that day, watching those nuns, that if 
following the law of the land ever meant that I would contradict the law of God, I'd rather peacefully sit in a jail cell with my conscience than sleep in a warm bed knowing that I'd betrayed my Lord. I just got to wrestle with it, though, because I hear John's voice, and I hear over it the voice of Jesus Christ, like we hear from today. Why do you call me Lord? He says over and over again in Matthew, why do you call me Lord and not do what I say? This is a, this is a form of submission that's being asked of us. Submission. In Jesus' very harsh teachings today, he says things like, if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off. If your right eye causes you to look with lust on another one of your brothers or sisters, pluck it out and throw it away. I don't think he's speaking literally. At least we've never made a practice of it in church discipline. But I think he is speaking seriously. I think he's speaking seriously. He's saying that we need to practice submission to this somewhat unique way that he's calling us to. Submission to God. And who would know submission to God more than Jesus Christ himself? It was in the garden that he prayed. They say drops of sweat fell from his face like drops of blood. He didn't want to go to the cross. But yet he says to his Father in heaven, if it is your will, Lord, if it is your will. There is a practical application to this submission. The idea of submission to Jesus Christ and submission to God is submission to the well-being of our brothers and sisters, of our fellow human beings, one human family. A real sense, too, because we just took communion. So we're part of the body of Jesus Christ. And to submit to that body means submitting to the well-being of our brothers and sisters. Remember that our personal relationship with God, is that's that vertical arm of the cross. That's the up and down. The cross has a horizontal arm as well. And that's our relationship with one another. It's just as important. Now, recently, last year or so, I hurt somebody that I care about very deeply. I'm not going to get lost in the details, but I, I, what had happened is I know I have a type of behavior. I tend to rush into things, and, and I'm careless sometimes. I had an employee once describe me as a car with no rearview mirrors. I can... <laughs> I can be a little bit kind of single direction. And what had happened was I was asked to schedule an important event in the community. Uh, and I, out of, out of just because I was being uh, empty-headed, I scheduled it on a very holy day for this person's religion and this person's community. And so I made it impossible for them to come. And I ought to have known that it was a holy day because the religion that they practice is the same as my brother. Uh, they were Jewish people, and I'd scheduled something on a very important Sabbath day for them. And when they told me that, I had a moment of panic. I, I mean, I already booked the caterers. I mean, this thing was going forward. And I felt terrible. <laughs> you ever feel that? It's a sense of panic? You don't want to hear that you've hurt your friend or committed an offense. Now, I thought about the things that children say. I hear them from mine quite often. Well, I didn't mean it. I didn't mean to do it. I don't know, I don't have everybody's high holy days in my back pocket. You know, I thought, man, you know, my religion is the default setting for so many Americans. Why couldn't I have just taken a minute, hit pause? I got angry with myself. I never said the one that I liked the worst, which is, I'm sorry if your feelings are hurt. Don't ever say that. That's ridiculous. Instead, I 
just felt my feelings for a second, and then I said, I apologize, I'm sorry. I said what I'd done wrong, I promised to try better in the future. That's submission, that's what submission is. It means seeking honest forgiveness without trying to avoid accepting another person's frustrations, especially when they're warranted. Submission, apologizing, it's harder than defensiveness. It's harder than defensiveness at first until you start to get good at it. You can't, um, you can't do forgiveness if you're trying to be in a position of power over other people. Um, if you're sitting there too with, and you're writing a list of people that need to apologize to you, <laughs> that's not healthy. Don't focus on who needs to submit to us, but rather think, think about who we can apologize to. This is Zen, folks, um, and it's one of the only ways I know to get through this life without carrying a burden of spite and defensiveness. And it takes practice. It takes practice. I'm very fond of one of the phrases uh, that I've heard from some of my Zoomer uh, friends that are younger than me in their 20s. I heard one of them talk about somebody the other day and they said that that person has got main character syndrome. I thought that was pretty funny. I said, say more about that. And they said, well, they're going through life, they think they're the main character. Ever meet anybody like that? Yeah. Um, we need to have an awareness about this sort of thing. Uh, so that we remember that, um, that Jesus washed some feet. He didn't wash everybody's feet, but when you get good at this stuff about apologizing and submitting to other people, you get better at it, you practice. Now you might find yourself surrounded by folks that want you to wash their feet, so maybe you gotta hit the pause button. But when we do this, we kind of start to practice a form of spiritual downward mobility. In the Gospel of Matthew, at one point, Jesus tries to make it as simple as possible because people aren't getting it. He says, church, the greatest among you, greatest among you, is going to be your servant. And Luke, he gives him an object lesson. He, he scans the crowd and he takes... There's a little kid, there's like a, a poor little kid standing there that didn't ask to be part of the sermon. And Jesus grabs him and puts him down in front of the disciples and says, whoever receives this child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives him who sent me. For he who is least among you all is the one who is great. Jesus was trying to say, look, behold, can you serve a child? Can you make a child your boss? Jesus is a servant to his disciples. He washes their feet even when they say, No, Lord, you're too important to wash our feet. He does it anyway. Now, it's counterintuitive, and it, it, it's not common sense, because there are other saviors and other little gods out there in the world that don't ask that sort of thing from you. I think about mammon a lot. Mammon is a god that Jesus talks about. Mammon, the love of money. Mammon, who claims to be able to save your lives, but not your soul. It's an important distinction. And we don't have to follow Jesus. The Bible says for itself in Joshua, right? It says, choose for yourself this day which God you will follow. 
Oh, we can choose if we want. Here in America, we can choose for ourselves a different God in the afternoon and a different God before dinner, a different God before we go to bed. But as for me and mine, we will serve the Lord. To live a life of submission instead of a life of glorious upward mobility, increasing wealth and status, live a life of submission is to worship a king in the dirt and dust of the world. Not a king high upon a golden throne or in an oval office somewhere. And then, well, and then to do what he says to do. This is choosing a life of intentional downward mobility. The stock answer to this is that it would satisfy the Puritan forefathers. I'm sure it would satisfy Charles Finney. It would satisfy Edwards and Mather and the rest of them. All the golden riches and fame and fortune, he preaches, are simply golden anchors affixed to your soul. They will simply serve to hasten your descent to the fires of hell. I guess that gets people in church. Um, but it's not what Jesus says. Jesus says, for the most part, don't focus on those things because they're a massive distraction from the life that God wants you to live. This is why I, uh, in previous churches, always sought to learn the names of the folks that slept in the bushes and around the building and in the alleyways. Because it bothered me when somebody would come up to me and say, hey, there's a homeless guy in the foyer. So I would say, I don't know any homeless guys. I know Steve, and I know Rick. I know those guys, this is one of them. To know them by their name so that I might become a servant to them. That's why when I started out after that altar call from John Deere, I chose to sleep a few nights on the gospel mission. That's why I will probably never ever see the far side of a million dollars. And I roll with some pretty scruffy people. But that's because that's what Jesus did. He lived a life of intentionality with those people. And it's better because the laughter is fuller for being victorious over the pain. Kinship is earned, never purchased. Life tastes better because the food is real. You cooked it with your own hands. And then when you turn to your left and your right, you see the face of Jesus Christ. Submission means what's learning honestly, good, and valuable in this life and chasing it. Jesus washed the feet of his disciples. He taught the things that he taught. He teaches us these things today to let yes be your word and no be your word because he knew that they wanted to submit to a king, but he was terrified of the kind of king that they would end up submitting to. He knew that their idea of who should be king, probably like my own, was screwed up by the world. He wanted to show them what a real king looks like. And so that's why he knelt down in the dirt. And that's why he walked with them. And that's why he taught them. And that's why he washed their filthy feet with his holy hands and dried them on his own clothing. You are his hands and his feet. You're the body of Jesus Christ at work in the world for its salvation. Find out where you are needed. And then let's kneel together in the dirt and submit to the way of the servant. And then turn and be healed. Amen.